The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz and TV columnist Margaret Lyons. Hey guys. Hey. Hi. We might sound a little bit different to you all. We're, <laughs> we're in a, an office at the Slate offices because our normal recording studio had a little well we don't really know exactly what was going on but there it was sounded some like pipe the, it sounded like the incredible hulk was <laughs> yeah. fighting someone on the on the floor above us matt actually wanted to continue recording in there as if there were a ghost in the room but yeah. we thought it might be annoying for you all we're in the office of jacob weisberg who is the uh, editor in chief of slate group and uh, we're all naked and we're eating nachos <laughs> don't tell him okay and i'm trying not to spill anything but, you know, I can't promise. No I can't promise it's here. not going to happen because I'm eating them with my hands. You know, so. <laughs> I missed you guys last week. Yeah, how was your vacation, Margaret? It was great. Well, we're glad to have you back. And and a lot of exciting TV to talk yeah. about. Yes. Speaking of which, you guys have any moments from the past week that stuck out to you? I've been watching Chef's Table on Netflix, and it's so good. And I didn't expect it to be as compelling as it was. I thought it would be sort of... That standard food show where it's just like, oh, chefs, aren't they amazing? They're so much better than regular not chef people. And like that whole, you know, I I feel like every episode of like every Anthony Bourdain thing is like, instead of being me, like you have to be some sad sack of garbage, but I get to be me. Let's go on vacation. Can you explain the premise of it? So every episode profiles a different quote unquote exciting uh, well-regarded chef and it also tells the, the story of their restaurants but also their like personal lives and their family and how they sort of think about food and why they think about it the way they do and it's just like it's beautiful I think the aesthetics of it are really interesting and the people are just really well defined and textured and you learn a lot about their sort of philosophy that's sort of the point of food tv shows right is that like you learn a lot about a person by what they cook and how they eat and mm-hmm. why they choose what they like and I just I've been very enchanted by the show so a really delightful surprise for me because I feel like a lot of food shows wind up being sort of the same people and the same crap. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice change of pace, especially from like Chopped or Cutthroat Kitchen or something where it's like food as spectacle versus food as culture. I really like it. How about you, Matt? Well, you know, not to be predictable, but it's Mad Men. It's Don in that meeting uh, zoning out and looking out the window and seeing the jet plane with the vapor trail over the Empire State Building. It's just a reminder that although Mad Men is a dialogue-driven show for the most part, some of the signature moments involving Don don't have dialogue. And this was probably, for my money, the best one that he's had since season five when he stared down the abyss of that elevator shaft. I'm going to have to go with Mad Men as well. I just love that scene with Peggy walking down the hallway into McCann Erickson with her sunglasses on and the cigarette dangling. And that was just such like an incredible... And the, and the cunnilingus it, octopus painting. Yeah, yeah. That was great. <laughs> was just, I, get, I, I hope she does put it up on her wall. I think she will. <laughs> Why would she bring it with yeah. her if she wasn't going to? Exactly, right? She could yeah. hang that in her home. <laughs> That's true. Right? She brought it to the office explicitly <laughs> to have hentai porn in her office. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also love the scene with also Peggy at the Sterling Cooper and partners offices when she hears someone in the office and she's like, hello. And the, what is it? Organ music is playing. Yeah. I, my heart just like stopped. It felt like I was in a horror movie all of a sudden. And I also like that the, uh, the camera angle on Roger and the scene where she's roller skating around and around Mm -hmm. reveals that John Slattery actually can play. That was interesting. Yeah. I didn't notice that. Well, we're going to talk about Mad Men later in the show too, right? But first we're going to talk about the finale of the last man on earth. 
and take a look back at the season as a whole and where we stand now. Then we'll get to Sunday night's episode of Mad Men. And at the end, we'll answer questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So Sunday night was the season one finale of The Last Man on Earth. And when the show premiered, people kind of raved about how original it was and kind of excited about having this type of show that felt like a cable show on, on network TV. But then there was like a strong contingent that kind of felt bothered by how it focused on Phil's romantic misadventures and his obsession with getting laid, basically. <laughs> Do you think it lived up to the expectations it set up in its premiere episode? Well, it certainly became more conventional as it went along, but that's partly a consequence of adding more characters. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't, it's questionable whether they could have sustained it with one or even two or three characters for any length of time. But uh, the problem, I I just, I don't know. This show never really snapped into focus for me. Like, I can't deny that it's unusual and probably more unusual at the beginning than it was near the end. But it just felt like it needed to be more something. I don't know what. Like, it needed to be, like, a little more Chaucer and a little less, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, something else. I don't know. It just, I wanted it to be edgier, nastier. Not darker, like in that cliched comic book sense, but, like... I felt like it needed a bit, little bit more, mon- like a kind of a Jabberwocky, Monty Python kind of vibe to it. Like, it just was so nice. It's just so nice. And I know some people love that, but that's not really my bag when it's a thing about the apocalypse. So I actually didn't find it nice. And I'm somebody who does generally prefer kind comedy to cruel comedy. Yeah. I think the problem for me was that it just felt so phony baloney all the time. In the pilot, in the first few episodes, it did this incredibly good job of convincing you that this was the world. This was the Mm post-apocalypse. This is how everyone was. And then once we got to actual human behavior, it just felt like complete bullshit to me. And no one's emotions tracked or made sense. And no one's behaviors. Like we see Phil being like very destructive and sort of nihilistic early on. And then it's like oh, is he just an asshole, right? Like when everyone else is around, it's like, oh, you're just like a jerk? Yeah. Uh, And I just couldn't buy it. Like it was just not enough for me to like latch onto in terms of like passion or understanding or caring. And I think, you know, a lot of comedy, we're going to have ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances or extraordinary people in ordinary circumstances, right? Because then we build tension. And Mm -hmm. from that tension, we can have both drama and comedy. And I think this show sort of struggled with trying to figure out are the people extraordinary? How extraordinary is the circumstance? Once we establish that the circumstance is very weird, but then at the same time, everyone's just like kind of going to live in a house and have plenty of resources. So now the circumstances aren't so extraordinary. So then where are we like finding this tension? And what right. they decided like on they was camping. like from being dicks to each other, <laughs> yeah. right? Like the tension is, was like, oh, everyone's like a dick all the time. And that like, that to me is like not actually the most interesting kind of tension, especially given the the framing of the show yeah that said the the closing moment of the finale really did capture me i was surprised and like took my breath away so you're speaking of the moment where we find out that will's brother is in space or yeah yes yeah Yeah. i mean and honestly even if it wasn't like once we had the miller i was like oh my heart but even when just like oh my god someone's stuck in space wow what an added what a strange because i sort of thought once we zoomed out to earth that they might zoom back in on like a separate group of survivors sort of yeah we'll get into that you know i was relieved that that didn't happen because i think for all three of us we all watch a shitload of tv and for me the rarest thing a show can do is genuinely surprise me especially with a show where i feel like 
added so many like quote unquote surprises with adding new characters, but it kind of started to feel like the same thing happening over and over again. Yeah. Whereas this felt a little different. You know, we we have this space element. We have <laughs> like <laughs> his brother. You know, someone who knows him and who might contextualize his character a little this, better. This see, this is the thing I was starting to say was when they when they zoomed out when they zoomed out from this little story that we're seeing to the shot of the globe, which is sort of a you know. A shot you get in a lot of science fiction movies and animation. It's kind of a cliche shot. Right, exactly. But But it's cool. My thought was, oh, there could be many other stories happening down here on the Earth. And then the next thought I had was, why are we watching this one? Yeah. Why are you watching this one? And I know that's not fair to the show. You tell, you know, you <laughs> criticize the show that you've got and not and not, you know, being filled with longing for a show that you don't have. But that stuck in my mind and even that space station reveal, cool as it was, didn't quite erase yeah. that feeling. Yeah. What did you think of all the new characters that were introduced? Do you think they added anything to the story? To me they felt a little flat. But some were better than others. What do you think? I like some of them. I, mm-hmm. I felt like other Phil was uh, a bust. Yeah. Honestly, he was a bust. And it bothered me that the only significant African-American character in the cast was basically like, you know, a kind of at first a muscle-bound perfect person and then at the end rather menacing. His character didn't quite make sense personality-wise. It felt like they were using him to help the plot. Like, oh, suddenly he likes every weird thing Carol does in bed. You know, he, he they were using him to fit these kind of needs to move the plot forward. Yeah, and I also feel if you have a, a white cast and you have one African-American actor who's who's got a significant part to play that you shouldn't describe him as, what do they call him, a, a buck at one point. Like, I feel <laughs> like the show is not aware of this enough to use mm-hmm. language like that. I think to Matt's point from before about how you wanted a little bit more darkness, I really wanted everyone to admit how hard it was to be that alone for that long. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. I figure, like, There's, like no I get it. Like, everyone's or annoying or, like, you know, oh, isn't Carol, like, such a nag? But if you'd been alone completely for two years, like, that's torture, right? Well, we think about, like, mm-hmm. how horrible that would be. When you see other people, I don't think your first instinct is going to be like, oh, I wish they'd shut up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't We would have right. a much bigger sense of relief. And I want to hear more. Like, <laughs> I never thought I'd ever hug anyone again. Like, let's all sleep in the sleeping bag together. Like, I didn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was and, then, no... and then the inevitable moment when you get tired or anno- of people or annoyed by people is funnier. Yeah, because you have that gratitude, that rush of gratitude immediately, and then it's like it's almost Seinfeldian that kind right. of a beat, you know? I like, just, oh, I wish this person would shut up. It's like that's the first person you've seen in two years, and you've only been with them for fifteen minutes, yeah. and already you're annoyed by them. That's yeah. funny. I don't know. I guess I just I thought that was like so strange and like the exact opposite of what the whole work of setting up the world accomplished, right? Because once we've set up like how desperate and like Phil has been looting every. <laughs> Yeah. work of art and, and a bunch of Oscars and stuff. So like he's not um, removed himself from the idea of like art culture or society. Like mm-hmm. he still is in a lot of ways like participating in what we consider important and and what we value. And so for him to then I don't know, not be happier to see people, I guess yeah. it just strikes me as weird. And for everyone else to then for everything to just boil down to like oh, but we're going to all just only ever have sex with one person again? It's like, no, you're all definitely going to have sex with each other, right? right? Like, right. like decide that this is like a free love utopia and all like get to off. work or whatever. Right. I don't know. It just didn't didn't make sense to me. So in Sunday night's finale, we see new Phil Miller dump original Phil Miller into the desert and tells him to just never come back. And we have a clip here of Carol coming to his rescue and deciding to go with him after he sings this song that he wrote for her and kind of... Wins her over again. 
So, where should we go? You're staying with me? You need me. What about new Phil? I don't want to be with a man who can leave someone in the desert to die. I want to be with a man who doesn't have the heart to go through with it. And I don't know, call me crazy, but I feel like we belong together. I gotta be honest, Carol. I feel like you're making a big mistake here. I know. So what did you think of Carol's speech here? Do you think she was kind of too quick to take him back after everything he put her through this season? Or do you feel like they have a genuine connection in it and it made sense plot-wise? I don't think they have a genuine connection. <laughs> <laughs> as pleasant as the actors are, I agree with Margaret. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure that any of the characters really make sense. And I don't mean that everybody has to be 100% psychologically plausible in a sitcom at all times, but just, you know, there needs to be some kind of internal logic within the show. And I didn't feel, I just got to the end and I felt like I don't feel like I really actually know any of these people still. Right. I mean, I think the fact that, for example, we can call something Seinfeldian, right? It's because we know so clearly what those characters' deals are and something that would bug them. You know, it's hard. Obviously, we have like a lot more Seinfeld than we have Last Man on Earth. But I I still think that, yeah, there's no sort of coherence to character behavior and at any given moment, a character would like or hate something that, I don't know, I feel like they could go either way on. Sort of like in a Will Ferrell film. You know, it's yeah, like, a, like whatever they think the laugh is, that's where they, right. that's what they go and for. So I think, like, especially when we're building comic characters in such a sort of traditional sitcom setup in a lot of ways, right? Like, everyone's bumping heads. Like, we're, like, close quarters kinds of hijinks. Yeah. It's going to be a lot easier for pattern breaking and pattern building to happen when characters have a very clear deal where we know how they think, why they think that way, what their history is, the thing they always run into, what their, you know, if we're going to boil it down to, like, what's their Debbie Downer thing, like, input, whatever, they always will have blank. And I think there's right. no one kind of behavior we saw that everyone always did, except for original Tandy Phil <laughs> being a jackass, right? Like, that was the only thing we could really count on, I think, over mm-hmm. the course of the series was that he would somehow, like, be ungracious. Yeah. And that, to me, is not really a comic point of view or a comic lens for a character. That's just a weird way to keep us from growing to care about him. I feel kind of bad that we're talking about the show this way because it's uh, there's so many talented people and it's really trying to be something original and there's so right, many so shows that's on TV like, it's not a show that, that I so hate. Crappy. I watched every episode well, yeah, and I think yeah. that there you is... You know, it's only 13 episodes so far and yeah. I'm going to continue watching it and there are episodes that I liked more than others. I think as a whole we can look back and see it has things it needs to work out but do you think you would recommend it going forward? Like, would you say, hey, you should check out this show? Depends on the, it depends on the person. Okay. Depends on the yeah, person. That, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, not wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. but in specific cases, yeah. What do you think it needs to do in the next season to be a better show? Would you like it if it got rid of all the characters and just kind of started in a new space? I want it to be just a little bit tougher, a little bit mm-hmm. tougher, like with the characters and with the scenario. Like, I'm not saying that it's got to be turned into Road Warrior all of a sudden, but... It just feels a little too much like a Saturday Night Live sketch from like 30 minutes before the show goes off the air to me, you know, Mm -hmm. which is when a lot of the weird, wonderful stuff happens on Saturday Night Live, but also a lot of the stuff where you go, this never should have made it to air. It's very hit and miss for me. I mean, it's sort of a weird comparison, but I I guess I'd probably take a page from the Americans and say, we've established enough and it's time to stop inventing and start discovering. So we now have a fully fleshed out world. We get the premise. We get the framing. We get who's around. No more adding in more of that. Now Mm -hmm. we're adding in 
How did you get here? What does it feel like here? In what ways are you conflicted? In what ways are you certain? What is the secret that you have that if everyone else found out would be damaging or a relief, right? And sort of spending time, like, really investing in character and character behavior in this way that I think the Americans, season one, excellent. Season three, unbelievably Mm -hmm. excellent, right? And because it stopped inventing, stopped being like, oh, and then this crazy thing happened. It was like, nope. The things that will happen have happened already. Yes. What, what is actually happening is how much our characters are affected by that mm-hmm. and how much you have grown to care about. And also being 100 percent consistent about the characters in the world and following the premises that were established in season one to their logical conclusion, no matter how horrible that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did like that when Phil is in the car with Carol and they're kind of reintroducing themselves to one another. He's like, I have a brother. And she's like, oh, I didn't know that. And it feels like there's a lot that we could know about these people's lives, their past lives that could help kind of make them more interesting characters. Because right now they're just people that exist as if they don't have any past. They don't, yeah. they're, they're not real people. Yeah. So I will say though, this is like a major pet peeve of mine for TV shows. It's like, hi, you know, I'm a character you've known this whole time. And they're like, let's start over. Like that to me is <laughs> like yeah. such bullshit and like I hate when shows do that I hate when movies do that you can see it coming a mile away and it's one of those things where like this has never happened in life it has never happened no one has actually done this this is not true human behavior at all like oh man it's something we only see on TV yeah that's just like such a weird like Let's You've do it written again. yourself into a corner and let's paint a let's paint a new door on the wall so we can escape look I think we've all had a fight with someone where you're like okay you know what Let's take a breather or whatever, right? Or mm-hmm. you have like a big blowout with somebody's like, can we just move on? And you can. I think that's yeah, possible. Yeah, but you still remember the but you, stuff but you, also that you don't about. So, like that whole thing of like, let's start over. I'm Margaret. You know, I'm it doesn't like, erase I grew everything. up in New York, right? Like right, that's right, right. like that little literal like reintroducing yourself Especially by when, name. Especially when things have been said that can't be taken back. Yeah. Let's start over. Hi, I'm my name. It's like, please, let's write this again and this time like you mean it. <laughs> oh, it makes it crazy. You could have written literally anything and you chose like the sort of stinkiest cliche in the book. Ugh. The TV show we're discussing is The Last Man on Earth. It aired its season one finale on Sunday night on Fox. So on last week's episode of Mad Men, we saw SCNP get absorbed by McCann Erickson. And this week we see them moving into their new offices. And a lot of this episode focused on Joan and Peggy and Joan kind of dealing with sexism within the office over and over again. And Peggy waiting around in the old SCNP office because she's the only one who hasn't been, no space has been made for her in the new office. So she's putting her foot down and not going there until someone gives her an office. And Matt, you in your recap, you talked about how there's kind of a sense of purgatory in this episode. I felt like yeah. Peggy kind of really gets at that. Well, this is a, an episode that more so than even a lot of Mad Men episodes, it's haunted by ghosts, literal mm-hmm. figurative ghosts and like personifications of them and also ideas. And Roger and Peggy and, and Ed briefly are kind of haunting the old SCNP offices in a sense. And Roger even plays the organ like he's a fan <laughs> of the opera, <laughs> which I just love. But there's also this feeling of revenge being a dish best served cold. Like I feel like Hobart, who was introduced in season one, he's always wanted to get his clutches on Don mm-hmm. and by extension the entire agency. And in fact, Don, I believe, engineered one of the reinventions of of their agency specifically to keep them out of the clutches of McCann. So yep. finally McCann has won. 
And this is just, you know, now we have you and we're going to torture you. That's what it feels like to me. Like, I don't feel like anybody, I feel like even Pete, who seems pretty happy, I feel like he's being set up to fail too. Like, I just can't imagine anything's going to go well with any of these people, you know, except maybe for Harry, who is just completely (laughs) (laughs) without principles of any kind. But it's realistic. It's a very upsetting, frustrating, in many ways sad episode, but it's very Mm -hmm. realistic. And I like the fact that even though Joan has that wonderful scene where she stands up to Hobart. The scene when she's dealt with two men kind of putting her down and sexually harassing her. And she takes it up with McCann Erickson CEO, Jim Hobart. And this is what happens. I wonder how many women around here would like to speak to a lawyer. I think the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has one. Women love it here. You want to threaten us? You'll be all alone. No. I think the second I file a complaint, I'll have the ACLU in my office. And Betty Friedan in the lobby with half the women who marched down Fifth Avenue. I guess you didn't see the headlines about what happened at Ladies Home Journal or Newsweek. Do you have any idea how much space McCann buys in the New York Times every year? We could get them to print Mein Kampf on the front page. Yes, I'm sure I'll find it difficult to find a reporter who wants to embarrass you this deeply. Look, you're unhappy. I know I'm unhappy. So how about this? I'm willing to give you 50 cents on the dollar to never see your face again. I guess I wasn't clear. I'm not negotiating. then you should get out of my office immediately. So it's really interesting in that scene to me, just from a blocking standpoint, that he, when he is put on the defensive, when, it clear, when it's clear that Joan has principles and isn't going to budge from them, he stands up. He stands up, he looms over her in a way to physically mm-hmm. intimidate her in a way that, same way yeah. that he's financially and emotionally intimidating her, and she does not stand I, up. I, I, I love that. It's interesting. Yeah. And then he sits back down. And they're on the same level, and essentially they've got a Pyrrhic victory or a quagmire that's about to happen here. Mm -hmm. And in the end, she takes 50 cents on the dollar, which I think is realistic. It's not the satisfying ending that probably a lot of viewers want. Like, we want her to lead a charge against sexism in the workplace and, you know, file a complaint with the EEOC and get the ACLU in and Betty Friedan with the protesters in the lobby, but... Do you think she would have had enough proof to even win that kind of a battle? I don't case? know, but I feel like it's it, it's sort of, to me, that's sort of tangential to the real issue, which mm-hmm. is what is more important to you, winning or living your life? And that's something like I feel like the character who embodies that most more than anybody else is Don. Like Don's somebody who was constantly going off on crusades. He'd get his back up about anything. He always had to win. He always had to be the victor in every situation. That's been less and less of a case with him in the la- in this last like season and a half, I would say. But we see that with uh, Joan as well, and Joan has a number of different options, not just filing a complaint with the EEOC, but also taking up her boyfriend on his offer to have a guy take care of it. And she doesn't, and that seems realistic because the alternative is fighting on for years, possibly losing and being an enemy within McCann, and it just seems like it's not the satisfying ending, but it felt real. I'm not totally convinced it's the end for Joan, right? 
Uh, so we know that she asked, what's her boyfriend's name, Richard? Richard, yeah. Um, he was like, oh, business stuff, I'll help with that. And his two options, option one was lawyer and option two was henchman. And she's sitting there with Jim Hobart and he is option one, he says lawyer. And then option two, he gets up to physically intimidate her and he's the henchman, right? So she suddenly now knows those are his two moves and he tried both of them and neither of them worked, right? So Joe knows that McCann Erickson's two moves of lawyer and henchman are not going to work on her, right? She just said that they didn't. So I think when she says to Roger that sort of like eye roll move, I'm not convinced that she's actually like, okay, I'll take it, right? Like I think... You don't think she's going to take the deal? I don't know. I would believe that she did, but I'd also believe that next week she'll come back as like, you know what, I changed my mind or I'm coming back at you with X, Y, and Z. She took a Rolodex, right? That was significant. Mm -hmm. Whatever her non-compete entails... I don't know. I guess it just didn't feel like Joan says tell him he has a deal. Yeah, I guess I just don't think he does. Hmm. I mean, from an audience satisfaction standpoint, I hope you're right about that. <laughs> oh, I'm honestly not like dissatisfied by that. Yeah. I think of all the things I like about Joan, I also don't think she's somebody who particularly is interested in being part of a movement. Right. Were you surprised by the fact that she kind of brought up this woman's movement in a meeting with, you know, Jim Hobart and kind of threaten him with that I, I didn't see that coming from Joan necessarily like have she have, have, have we seen her take any interest in feminist issues in, in past seasons um not explicitly so but but tangentially how could she not have absorbed all that right you know and and also when you look at I mean I've been re-watching episodes from the first two seasons recently mm-hmm. and it's incredible who she was in those first sure. couple seasons versus who she is now and she's been through so much. So I would imagine that I, I think that's coming. From, I don't think that's just a tactical thing. I think she means it. I didn't think it was disingenuous. Right. Um, and I think expecting people to have had the same ideals for their whole life is a real losing battle. Yeah. And also things often don't really, you know, we don't think about issues until they affect us. Also for Joan, you know, Joan's already rich, right? It's very mm-hmm. easy for her. Nothing's at risk for her, right? And right. versus Shirley, who won't go work there at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she says not advertising, is not always a welcoming place for everyone. Right. So it's easy for Joan to make her point when, you know, if he says, get out right now, you're fired. Never darken this door again, which he basically does say she's rich enough. She's stable enough. You know, there was points in her life where Joan had to acquiesce to the demands of violent, terrible men, because that was the only way she was going to have any kind of financial stability or security. Mm-hmm. Right. That's not a problem anymore. So it's pretty easy to fight that fight when the consequences for you yourself are mitigated. It's a lot harder to be the face of that fight when or to even participate in that fight when it comes at a deep social, financial, stable cost. Right. What do you think about her scenes with Well, she has a scene with Don in the elevator this episode and with Pete in the cab in the last episode where it feels like, you know, Pete and Don are trying to comfort her in a way. But you know, how helpful can you, are they it actually rings hollow. being? It rings yeah. hollow because they're giving her pep talks, but that's all they're giving her, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, go get them, go get them, Tiger. Like that only get, that'll only get you so far. And there's still an incredible power imbalance. And I think to watch this episode is to be acutely aware of the fact that the men on this show have a much more limitless capacity to reinvent themselves than the women do. Like, there are just fewer entanglements for them. And, like, you know, Don, because of who he is, but also because he's a man, can just sort of take off and leave everything behind. And people aren't as shocked by it as they would be if if mm-hmm. a woman did it. You know? And, and Diana, I think, is proof of that as well. Right. She's, she's like, a horrible, vilified figure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, among her own people, among her own family. And it, there's a sense, it, they say that the God claimed her daughter and the devil claimed her. Don has a moment in... I think it's Hobart's office where 
they kind of puff him up and they're like, we want you to bring things up a notch. And, you know, the camera kind of pans onto his face as he says, you know, they ask him how he would introduce himself. And it's just like kind of amazing John Draper moment where you're like, yeah, he's got it. You can tell he feels really good. But then I didn't didn't feel that that. at all. Well, I, I felt that I felt that he felt good in that moment. And then later when we see him in the conference room and he overhears them telling the same thing to Ted, he kind of has this twinge where he's like, I'm not special. Hmm. That's how I read it. So I think we've heard Don do the sell it voice a bunch of times. And the time I'm thinking of in particular is at the Burger Chef presentation. They're practicing the prep and Peggy does the voice of like, every ad is a story and here to tell that story is Don Draper, right? And she like snaps into that voice and Pete sees her do it and it's like, oh damn, right? And then they're just like, oh blah, blah, blah and then then the meeting will happen. And then when we see the actual presentation, Don does that voice. Here to tell that story is Peggy Olson. But he has this like, phony, baloney, showman voice, right? Because yes. that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. He is selling something. It is a shtick. And that was the voice I heard. And he's like, Don Draper, McCann Erickson. <laughs> it was like, oh, this is your I'm selling that's what stuff I, yeah, voice. That's what okay. I heard. And like, I, I read it as him sort of coming to terms with like, I've made a mistake or this is not, this is not what I want. I hate this. It didn't read as a success story to me. And I think... I mean, eventually he became very unsatisfied enough that he was like, peace out. Well, I feel like one of the things that triggered Don's sudden bolting from the agency was that he's in this meeting with all of these people who are basically like, there's a sense of redundancy of like, they've got like a bunch of people who are doing multiple jobs, like kind of repeating the same jobs. But then this guy, Bill Phillips from Continental Research, the way he talks, the Mm -hmm. language he uses and the tone he uses, it's just like what you were saying, Margaret. Like, it's like he's, he's basically doing a Don. Right. So I think and, and it's there's no need for a guy like Don. And he, and it's the sort of thing that can throw you into existential crisis. Like, you know, that's right. I mean, I, I think like we did see that crisis of Don, I think, to Gazelle's point of like Don feeling unspecial. So we have that moment in the boardroom where what does the sign say? Truth well told. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. I think that's even a real slogan for a real ad. It's just yeah. like this is. Yeah. I mean, that couldn't be more ironic. And then we see everyone open the same portfolio, the same pen and the same shirt cuffs, and everyone looks very samey, samey, samey. <laughs> and then the, the spiel we get is, you're in Wisconsin or Ohio, and you're this kind of guy, and you have a lawnmower and a dog, and we know this guy because there's millions of him. Ah, ha, 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 ha. And that yeah. is when Don's like, get me out of here. Yeah, <laughs> and like yeah. sort of Kool-Aid mans his way through the wall of like, ah, right? Just like leaving this like Don-shaped hole in the wall of like, I can't do this. So a you puff think, of smoke with some brill gone, cream in he's it. He's like gone for good. Like not oh. gone, like gone from the office. Oh, I don't know. Oh, who knows? Um, I know, but I think, I think that feeling, and I think it's a feeling I've certainly had of like, Oh, a lot of the ways that like I see myself as special. There's like a Margaret in your group of friends, and she does that too. Like, yes. right? Yeah, like, and yeah, it's sort yeah. of feeling that, like, yeah, oh, totally. you know, I'm special to me, and my family thinks I'm irreplaceable. But there's somewhere else where, like, around the dinner table, there's like the sarcastic sister, and she's doing just as well as I am. Right? Like, <laughs> right. Whatever it is, I think that's why Don liked being at a small agency was that there was no one like him, and he right. very much believes in this myth of himself. And anything that sort of erodes that or cracks that is is tough to reconcile, especially given that his actual identity is already a lie. Well, there's also this secondary thing related to Don that I find really interesting, and it's been going on from the beginning of the show, which is this affinity that he, he has this attraction repulsion to the counterculture. 
And we yeah. saw it manifested in his relationship with beatniks early on and then later with hippies. But you know, as early as season two, we saw him expressing an affinity for people who lived outside of the cultural mainstream. We lived mm-hmm. outside of bourgeois values. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, first came through, I think, really, really strongly in the jet set where he's, he's in this basically commune type situation and and he eventually sort of comes to his senses I mean, quote unquote earlier with which midge. episode was that yeah and with midge it starts too. with midge and the You're pilot right. right where and then even in babylon where midge's um sort of counterculture friends like how do you sleep and he's like on a bed made of money right right but he for somebody who hates being around those guys he doesn't hate it at all he goes and hangs out with them and yeah and he's and sleeping he, with one of them yeah he yeah. dates midge and and eventually gives her money for her heroin habit and then there's the hippies there's suzanne Sally's teacher, right? right? She's um, much more of that. She's got a touch she, of that. Yeah. Um, and then I was surprised, though, for somebody who's been assaulted by hitchhikers, that he would still pick up a hitchhiker. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because we've seen Don pick up a hitchhiker before, and they get really drunk, and they oh, yeah. beat the crap out of him and take his money. Right. So I was a little surprised to see Don continue to pick up hitchhikers. Well, what did you think of this whole, his road trip to find Diana and... Well, it makes sense to me because to sort of build on this idea, Don's life has been divested of all these outward signifiers of bourgeois success. Like he doesn't have his apartment. You know, his wife and family are increasingly in absentia. He goes to pick up his daughter and take her to boarding school, and she's already left without him. The agency that he helped found and reinvent, uh, or that he helped build rather and reinvent many, many times has been absorbed, so it no longer exists. The physical place no longer exists. His marriage to Megan no longer exists. All of these things have been taken from him, and increasingly all he has is just his body and his suit, and that's it, and the car that he's driving around in, and that seems to be oddly okay for Mm -hmm. him. And so when he picks up this uh, hippie, and you hear Space Oddity playing, which I thought was a great <laughs> music cue. I know a lot of people didn't like it like that. Does, I, you know, a lot of different complaints I've heard about that. But I thought it was perfect because like a choice in a, in a Scorsese or Tarantino or Spike Lee film, there's five or six different layers in which I think that's appropriate. And the, and the number one is David Bowie is a person who's reinvented himself probably a dozen different times. And I feel like this is where we're going with Don. I think he's going to turn into someone else. I don't think he's going to turn back into Dick Whitman. I think he's going to become somebody else. Or maybe we don't see what happens to him, but there's the implication. He gets visited by Burt Cooper again as he's driving. And I think Burt tells him, you like to play the stranger. Yes. So it does bring up this idea of he likes to just strip himself of everything and go be whoever he wants to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was reminded very much of... Meditations in an emergency where Don goes to see Anna and he's walking. He bought groceries and he's walking down the street and there's a bunch of guys working on like a hot rod. And Don's like, oh, I like cars. Like, are you hiring? And it's like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about, dude? Right? Yeah. Like, well, you're trying to get. And, and it seems actually completely sincere. He's like, oh, I used to sell cars. Like, I like, do you need like a sales guy? I'm that. <laughs> I'm Dick. Nice to meet you guys. And it's it's really genuine. And I could totally see him driving that guy to St. Paul and then being like, well, I don't know. St. Paul's I'll got his charms. Yeah, right? There's a little part of you that's like, oh. <laughs> I was reminded for some stupid reason of a line from the Albert Brooks movie Lost in America where he and Julie Aggarty are driving in the Win- Winnebago. It's like 15 minutes to the end of the film and they pass a trailer park and it's like somewhere in Arizona. And he says, my legs are tired. Let's live here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know? there's a little bit. I'm not predicting that as the end, but... If it happened, I wouldn't be, I don't know, betrayed by that. Mm-hmm. There is something about Don where who needs him, right? You know, even Meredith, who we've 
previously sort of thought of as maybe like a little ditzy or a little goofy. It's like, man, Meredith's got her shit together, right? She can yeah. be a decorator. You can imagine her right. being a... Well, I think it's interesting the revelation that she was an army brat, which is, you yeah. know, somebody who has to get used to reinventing themselves as they move from city to city. Yep. So, you know, that's right on. And I think Roger talking about all you need is a little push. Yeah. Um, well, and he and he does, he, and that ties back in with this idea of the abyss and the series of abysses that people are constantly on the edge of. And, and, and of course, the big one is mortality, but there's all these other little personal abysses like romantic and professional. And Don is somebody who lives on the edge of the abyss and is constantly looking for a reason to pitch himself over. And he's constantly committing romantic suicide, career suicide, and he's on the edge of personal suicide. There are periods when he drank too much. You know, he's pretty clearly a sex addict. Maybe it's in remission now. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, this constant flirting with oblivion is something that's been a constant throughout the show, and not just with Don. But I think that that conversation with Roger is fascinating because it sort of is a mirror image of all these negative images of the abyss where it's this idea that he was going to jump off the edge of the ship and it was a two-story drop. And that's another kind of abyss. But there it's a failure of nerve. Which like conversation? A, when Roger? he's talking Roger's to Peggy, talking Peggy in the office. Oh, Roger and Peggy. Okay. Yeah, yes. yeah. And and uh, he could have jumped off and he didn't. And that's a, that's a kind of a, you know, a seize the day. Like it would have been a, a better story if he had done the brave thing. But he didn't. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have, he didn't have the nerve mm-hmm. to do it. But he eventually did, right? Somebody pushed him. Somebody pushed him. That's right. Right. So you did yeah. it. I mean, you're in the water either way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of Peggy's plot line this, this episode? We kind of see her standing her ground and having this total badass moment walking into McCann Erickson. Do you think this sets up like a good sense of what's to come for her? Or is she going to deal with basically the same things Joan does or... I'm reminded of the episode with Joan and Peggy in the elevator in the the first episode and how how different they are. Yeah. And how Peggy's like, well, you look like that. And, you know, this is how you're going to be treated. Do we think Peggy is not going to deal with it in the same way that Joan does? Well, if there's no Don Draper in this agency now, then maybe she can she can. You know, people always say, well, she's going to be the the new Don Draper in a sense, Mm -hmm. like to the degree that a woman can be a Don Draper type. And that's certainly the sort of entrance that we've seen Don make many, many, many times (laughs) in the show where he's like he's so hung over that he can barely navigate the hallway. But there's also a kind of a devil-may-care attitude about her, and I like that. Mm-hmm. And um, she seems so- like somebody who the – reason, there's a reason why she and Don have had such an affinity because they are kindred spirits and in a very specific way, which is their ability to reinvent themselves and move on. So, you know, whether she's happy at McCann or not, I think is immaterial. She'll move – if she's not happy at McCann, she'll go somewhere else. I mean, that's what the headhunter said to her last week, right, which was like – spend three years there and then double your salary. I think we had a lot of groundwork in this episode indicating to us that Peggy is going to be given a very hard time at McCann. The two uh, copywriters who talked to Joan, when she's like, oh, those are Peggy's clients, and they sort of say to each other, well, maybe she'll throw us a crumb, right? Right. So we know, like even from the woman she might run into issues. So there's that. We also know that no one from her agency is going to be there to protect her, right? Mm -hmm. Don's not going to be there to vouch for her. Um, Not that she needs vouching for, but very much like these people operate as a team and now that team has been completely dismantled. Right. So I, I'd be surprised if suddenly Peggy was just kicking ass all over the place because it doesn't seem like an institution designed for that. 
Mm-hmm. No, but it's also been demonstrated in a small way in this episode that it's possible to kind of do passive-aggressive resistance in a way. Like, you know, I mentioned Bartleby the Scrivener, which is, you know, a different Melville reference from the one that they make in this episode. But Don, the secret of Don's success, such as it was, is that he kind of did whatever the hell he wanted and didn't even pretend to care what anybody thought of that. And and he was banking on people not having the nerve or the willpower to uh, discipline him too often. And he was usually correct. And Peggy may be able to pull off something similar at McCann. Certainly Hobart's sort of stymied attitude towards Joan suggested that that's not an impossibility. Right. So this episode has a lot of callbacks to The Other Woman from season five. And that's the episode where Joan winds up basically being prostituted into having sex with a jaguar guy. That's also the episode where Peggy quits. Right? right. And that's when she leaves and goes to work for Color Gleason and Chow. So we see a lot of echoes back and forth in terms of the way Joan is treated, the way people perceive Joan, but also in the way that um, everyone's timing is weirdly off. No one's in the right place at the right time. Everyone makes weird guesses when Peggy's like, oh, you can't swim. It's like, no, of course he can swim. It was that he couldn't jump. I was in the Navy, right. Right, so that everyone is just kind of like a little off and that sort of echoes through this whole season of like just nothing being uh, square, right? Mm -hmm. Everything being a little bit woozy kind of. Right. And so... From the other woman, we have Peggy leaving. We actually watch, we've seen Peggy carry a box down a hallway a bunch of times, right? And we see her in that episode, and that's when Dawn cries and holds her hand, right? And she's like, there's no number, and she really, she's really leaving. Uh, and she does, and we don't see her for a long time. In this episode, we have her joining, and we have Dawn leaving, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that indicates to me that Dawn's relationship with McCann is, is basically kaput, mm-hmm. just because we know that... Previously, we had Peggy leave and stay gone, and it, it took a merger for them to get back together. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely that whatever Don does next will again merge with McCann Erickson. That seems like a real right. losing proposition for Don. But, you know, he's said to Peggy before, I'd spend the rest of my life trying to get you back, right? So he's, you know, 30 years from now, Peggy and Don have the best ad shop in St. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so the TV show we're discussing is Mad Men. There are only two episodes left in the series, so you can catch us here again next week talking about... Gently weeping into (laughs) the abyss of no madman. So why don't we take a listener question? This question is from Craig. What's your number one favorite TV pilot, if you had to choose one? And we can also talk about, you know, in general, what our shows you think will immediately grab you from that first episode. And are there any shows that had a great pilot episode but kind of ended up being a train wreck after that? So I think lots of shows don't connect well with their pilot. And sometimes you can have a great pilot in a so-so show or a so-so pilot that turns into a terrific show. Pilots are not a great test case for how good a show is. That said, there are plenty of really good pilots. I think one of my favorites is How I Met Your Mother. I eventually really soured on that show. Um, although I think when it was good, it really was very good. Um, but that whole pilot is so charming and it was so, it really was like different for its era in terms of its sort of sweetness and gentleness. It was a very weird comedy era for network TV in like I think 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And then that pilot ends with him saying, and that's how I met your Aunt Robin, right? And so that's why that finale wound up irking a lot of (laughs) being so bothersome but in that moment you really can't believe it it was such a surprise and it was just like oh this is gonna be fun and for a long time it was yeah i think the best pilot i've ever seen overall like in every department was my so-called life i think that's perfect i guess like a perfect you know whatever 43 minutes yeah oh no it was longer Uh, than that's like a 49 minute 49 minute pilot yeah because that would have been 95 Yeah. yeah that's true but yeah i thought that was great and some other good ones were you know lost of course was great yeah um 
I thought the pilot episode of Cheers was terrific, just really telling you what you were in for with that show. And probably also uh, Miami Vice, which was uh, kind of revolutionary in Twin Peaks. I mean, those two, for different reasons, were were really, really important in the development of dramatic TV. However, they're both examples of uh, shows that, to one degree or another, never entirely lived up to their pilots. Mm -hmm. And I love Twin Peaks and I love Miami Vice, but... That unbelievable seismic impact, like of when both of those shows aired, I don't think was ever quite recaptured by anything that followed, although certainly the shows had their great moments. I also think the ER pilot is a superb pilot. It was visually and um, editing wise, like very, very different from anything else that was on TV at the time. And now those sort of standards of like push through the door, all the steady cam, all these like long takes seems very traditional, but in 1994. It really wasn't super traditional. It was incredibly uh, it was inc- kinetic. And like sort of technologically um, much more advanced than anything else that was happening on TV at the time. I think in terms of its authenticity, that was we not... We should just do a whole show about ER I could sometime. talk about ER forever. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, I know one piece I never wrote that I kept meaning to was how, you know, people kept going on and on about the long steady cam shots of Paul Thomas Anderson and Brian De Palma, but every single friggin' week, ER had one that was three, four, five minutes they're long. They're long, and they're jargony and complicated, and the sort of choreography that's happening, even in the pilot where, you know, we have, like, the pushing through the doors and we have people shouting like CBC, Chem 7, give me a talk screen, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right? there's like the bongos and, playing off. Yeah, <laughs> and we have people putting on gloves, putting on gowns, exchanging surgical hardware. Yelling stats. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it just, it all happens so fast and it's so, in, you become completely enchanted by it. Um, and especially, I do think that's a show that did live up to its pilot. I think yeah. there are plenty of episodes of ER that have just as much action and also just as much emotion, right? I think that's a hard thing to marry. I think it's a thing that shows today continue to struggle with of how much, you know, weeping versus how much cutting. It's also a very daring show, too, because of how it, it was uh, filled with assholes. Like, almost everybody on ER was an asshole of one kind or another, except for John Carter. But I'm serious. They were all, like, cable characters. They were not love. They were not lovable, cute, warm people. They were all very, you know, they were kind of holding you at arm's length to a degree, but they were so charismatic and so well-drawn that it didn't matter. Right. It didn't matter mm-hmm. that they weren't kissing your butt as if you were going, don't you love me? Aren't I wonderful? <laughs> also, I think in the pilot, uh, Carol Hathaway, that's where she attempts suicide, too. And yeah. she becomes a very important character over the course of the show. And obviously, Juliana Margulies has had a significant career post that. But I think it speaks to how important a performance can be on a pilot, that they watch that episode or the dailies or something. They're like, no, 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 it doesn't work. Let's keep her. We don't want her to die. Mm-hmm. Aaron um, Paul being another example sure. of that. Yeah. And Walton Goggins. It's a great, uh, what, what a compliment to an actor <laughs> where they plan to kill you and then they decide, nah, let's keep them around. For like a really long time and basically a, a career defining capacity. Yeah, you're so good we won't kill you. Like, what better compliment is there? Anyway, we've wandered far, far afield, but pilots. Pilots. Pilots are great. I, one of my all-time favorites is the Alias pilot because I was a huge Felicity fan and J.J. Abrams had once said that he wanted to create a version of Felicity where she has a secret life as a spy. And that's how I felt about Alias, where you get those scenes of her at home with her friends and she kind of feels like, I don't know if you guys watch this show or not, but yeah. it was... <laughs> I'm <laughs> it not a big Alias you know, person. It didn't, it didn't, I wouldn't say it lived up to, you know, in the final seasons, it, it kind of lost me, but but man, I just, I it really captured this element of like her home life and her secret life and... It gave a lot of Felicity fans, which, by the way, I love the Felicity pilot as well. But, oh, sure. Um, yeah. I, mean, I think what, one of the things that's hard is when we talk about living up to a pilot, 
how does that even work, right? right? What does that mean? I think the yeah. sort of objectives for a pilot are very different from the objectives of other episodes of a show or a season of a show. And certainly when we're talking about something like ER that was on for 15 seasons or, yeah. um, you know, Lost, which I think the sort of consensus is that maybe it was just a little too many episodes of Lost. <laughs> we just like lost a little yeah. uh, traction, right? So the idea that any given episode would ever have the amount of care and... Time also, they throw has. money. They throw money at pilots in a way they don't usually for the other. They're episodes. like, and then can be little movies in a way, or like, yeah. either, you know, they can be a little big. more self-contained. I also think, you know, when you write a pilot, it takes as long as it takes, right? Like, there's no. I mean, I guess depending on what your contracts are, but if this is your pilot, you'll rewrite it until you get it right. Versus it's next week, and it doesn't matter if it's done. Well, it's that's done. that's what, of course, that's what they say about you know albums. That, like the reason second albums are so often disappointing is you have your entire life to think about your first yeah. one and six months to think about your second. So I think holding every episode to a pilot right. standard is weird, and holding pilots to an every episode standard is weird too. I think best case scenario, a great show has a great pilot, but I would vastly prefer a great show have a crappy pilot than have a great pilot turn into a crappy show. And often I find second episodes of shows are the ones where you really find out what the show is anyway, because there's yeah. so much housekeeping that has to take place. And I, I, I pilots are almost always disappointing or annoying to me because they have to do so much of that, like, hi, Doug, I'm your brother, Phil, you know, that right, kind of right. stuff. There can be know? a lot of like exposition labor in a pilot. And I also think especially for comedies more so than dramas, because I think typically we think of a drama as having a much clearer I hesitate to say premise, but like the deal is a lot stronger. I think on a comedy, a lot more is going to come down to chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they all work at a radio station. It's like, okay, then what happens, right? Like, right. So a lot of news radio, for example, is going to come down to how everyone interacts with each other, like where the relationships develop, where chemistry develops. Um, And it's hard to engineer that and cast for that. You have to sort of write to the cast that you wind up with, particularly in a comedy. I think in a drama, the shortcomings of a not dramatic enough drama are way less severe than the shortcomings of a not funny enough comedy. Right. Yeah. That's true. Friday Night Lights also does oh my God, an incredible job amazing. of setting this this whole world up, and the characters are all so compelling. And we will all be tested, Giza. Ah, I cry thinking about that pilot. Well, guys, we're all going to go off and cry now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us with any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can catch me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and I'm on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Soller Sites. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt Soller Sites. Thanks for listening. <laughs>